middle-aged gay life, a series of career conundrums, confusing relationships, and thriving in the daily tasks of managing one's life. As you'll hear in today's episode, it is challenging to write any great gay or queer-themed novel, but especially so when you don't seek to invoke the common tropes of the gay literary canon. Can a novel just capture the inanity of gay middle-aged life with a tinge of comic relief? And I hope that anyone who listens to this, no matter their identity, specifically around age and sexual orientation, can, can maybe see something in this book that draws them to it. Because mm-hmm. I think the lessons in this book are far more reaching than just to a, a, a gay man. Today, a conversation about Andrew Sean Greer's novel, Less, a funny, light, and thought-provoking novel about a middle-aged gay man's midlife crisis and his journey back to the man he loves. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Andre Hebert. Andre was suggested as a guest by Leo Queen, who appeared on episode R6. Andre is also a personal friend. I worked with Andre during his time as an orientation leader at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and then watched him pursue his master's degree in higher education and student affairs, growing into the amazing professional and human he is today. We recorded this conversation in June of 2021. Talk to me about how you think about the history of your reading life. I remember that there were two distinct parts in my life where the idea of reading really changed for me. You know, at the beginning, growing up, my parents never really gave me books to read. Mm -hmm. Um, It was always toys or (laughs) mail or household items that I could just like play with. And in school, everything that required reading was just that. It was required. And it left a really nasty taste in my mouth because, you know, I never considered myself a really smart kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always comparing myself to others that are in my grade. And, and, And it seemed as though they were always reading much better than I was. Mm-hmm. You know, we would we would take these standardized tests that would place us at a reading level. Mm-hmm. And as I was always on track or on my my reading the reading level equal to the grade level that I was in, there were always others that were being praised for being above that. Mm-hmm. And so reading to me was as it was an experiment or an, an experience 
quite literally required of me. And I just didn't like that. Mm -hmm. I never, I never was able to kind of like let go and just like dive in. And then I, I would say, I mean, honestly, it wasn't until after grad school. I mean, this is really that late. Yeah. This is like 2016. And, you know, I think going to college, I appreciated literature because I learned that literature had a really big part in civilization, socialization, being a sociology major. I had to understand and enjoy reading to an extent because I was studying social sciences. And so I I knew that it was important, but I still never liked it. Mm -hmm. You know, I still never enjoyed it. I just, I did it because it was, it was what was, like I said, required of me. Grad school, same. I, you know, I love the topics of what I was learning and reading, but again, I was reading these immensely scholarly articles that were, that were using big language and concepts that I couldn't wrap my head around at that time. And then I was having these really deep intellectual conversations with my peers, again, comparing myself to my peers that were able to meet people at that level. And I was like, I don't, that's just, that's just not how I come to this world. Um, so it was after grad school, 2016, I was sitting in my living room and I had collected all of these books. Like I have, I, I mean, that's one built-in bookshelf in my home. I have two of them. And then every contain, I have books galore. Um, and it wasn't until after grad school that I finally was like, I have nothing to do. I have no required reading. Let's just like pop it, open a book and see where it takes me. And I was able to quite literally escape reality. Mm. I was able to close the book when I wanted, open the book when I wanted, stop after a paragraph because it hurt me or I didn't understand it. Mm. I was able to read chapters again and again. I was able to scream. I was literally able to experience a book like I've never experienced a book before. And, and I think that's when it changed for me. That's whenever I was like, this is, you know, this is something that I could get behind. It is this experience that I enjoy about reading um, that I want to, I want to latch onto. And so it was after that, that I tried to find books that would give me that same experience mm-hmm. um, or that same feeling. And then it evolved as I got interested in politics, as I got interested in queer literature, as I got interested in these taboo topics or um, uh, memoirs, autobiographies, I started finding people fascinating. I started seeing links and errors of, um, you know, these people wrote in this century, these people wrote in this decade, Um, And I was able to make those really good connections. And that, I mean, it really kind of just blew up from there. So when this, you know, sort of self-taught, self-discovery of reading postgraduate school started, do you remember the book that kind of kicked that off? Or do you remember some of the titles of things that you were reading at that time that helped you to 
come to a new understanding and appreciation of reading? Yes. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now. The Silent Wife. Mm -hmm. Looking for Alaska. The Three Fifty Shades of Grey book. <laughs> the Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Ooh, The Wedding by Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, I'll stop there. Ooh, okay, no, one more. Where is it? It's a Gillian Flynn book. Gone Girl. Lord, take my soul. Gone Girl. Why is that book so important? Oh my God. Let I've never me just read it. Tell- You've never read it. Y'all. Gone Girl by Jillian Flynn. There are three parts to this book. Um, the first part of the book is, um, wow. Okay. I'm not, I'm really bad at spoiling books. So here no, we are. No, it's fine. I mean, this, this podcast, we tell people they're spoilers. Like you just have okay, to Okay, great. Um, so Gone Girl starts with a husband going to work normal day and coming to find out that his wife has gone missing Mm -hmm. um out of the blue like goes home doors open wife's not there Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he gets these like clues as to maybe where she is or what's happening Um, Or that she's just dead or something. Mm -hmm. And then part one ends. And and you're like, huh, wow, this book is going to go one way. I I, like I already see it. It's just going to end this way. The first page of part two is told through the wife's eyes. Mm. And she's not dead. Mm -hmm. She orchestrated the whole thing Mm -hmm. of her going missing. Mm -hmm. Um, So much so that she had been thinking about this for years and she had been building all of these experiences and, oh, I don't want to give that away. Like she's been just building up until this point. Um, And she's just psychotic. You know, she did this so that her husband would realize that he is just so madly in love with her. Um, and she goes to different people's houses. She run, you know, she's trying to run away. So, you know, people don't find her. And then part three is her coming back and being like, I'm alive. Oh, please help me. I've been beat up. Oh my God, what is happening? And the husband and the wife know that one another know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to navigate this. Like, I know what you did. I know what you're doing. But she's like, I'm going to have your baby. They're never going to believe you. I'm going to kill you if, if you ever say something. And that it is just such a whirlwind. And I read that and I was like, I, I'm at a loss. I am at a loss, Jillian Flynn. And then I read Dark Places by her. Um, and that was, that also came out as in a movie, I think. Yeah, Dark Places by Jillian Flynn. Yeah, so Jillian Flynn, I mean, she has become one of my favorite writers.
So how did you come to find less? And why is this, why is this the book that you chose when I said, pick a book that you want to talk about with me? Less was given to me by my dear friend, Rachel, who is also a colleague of mine. I think she's a little bit more into books than I am. And I was reading during the pandemic and I was telling her, you know, what I was reading. I was reading multiple books at the time and I was just kind of going through them. And she said, oh, I have some books that I think I'd like to recommend to you if you're mm-hmm. open to that. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. And Les was a part of that um, book grouping that she gave to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at it and I was like, this seems, you know, silly. You know what? It's a, it's a cartoon drawing of a man falling as he's writing. He, you know okay, what is this? It looks pretty, it, it looks pretty queer to me. Um, and she told me that it was a really easy read. Um, if I'm into romance and emotions that I would probably enjoy it. Um, she said it, you know, this it's, it's, it's about a journey. This guy goes on a journey and I was like, all right, you know, I'm not doing anything with my time. So I might as well just dive in. And so that's how it came on my lap. And usually some of the best books that I've read quite literally just were handed to me. You know, the um, Gone Girl was just was given to me. I forgot by who, but it was just given to me. And after I read it, I was like, where has this been all my life? Mm -hmm. Um, The Midnight Library, I just finished. Oh, Matt Hagg's book. Yeah. It was given to me by my friend, Stephen. He was like, I'm not, I'm. Um, t- you know, my husband read it. He said it was good. I never even told him that I wanted it. He just gave it to me. And after I read it, I was like, this is a great book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so many things, so many books have been given to me. And so less, I, I popped open less and I read it and I read it during a pandemic. So I had nothing better to do than just to sit on my porch and read. Um, and then I quickly resonated with so much of this um, unconventional relationship or yeah, I'm going to stick with that. Yeah. I, I resonated with it and I was like, wow, this is not, this is not talked about at all, at least in spaces that I occupy mm-hmm. uh, with other, other gay men. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, which part is not talked about specifically? The, the success of a short-term uh, limit-placed relationship, the age gap uh, in a relationship. Yes. Um, hmm, so I want to say also hooking up, but I think hooking up is very much talked about. But I think the nuances of what a hookup comes with are the, the, the communication that is needed if you're going to have a consistent hookup, it's not really talked about that much. Usually mm-hmm. it's like, um, you know, we're going to do this for a little bit. Someone's going to get hurt at the end. And here we are. Mm-hmm. Or it's this idea of, and I, I don't think this was talked about um, specifically in this book, but this idea of ethical non-monogamy um, of, of, I can still be, deeply invested in a relationship with you 
and others. Mm. And that what and and whatever capacity we can define that or whatever you know makes sense for us. Mm-hmm. And you know, conceptually, I I understand that, right? Because as I've come to terms with my sexuality, as, I, as I've come to terms with sexual sexuality and gender and romance and emotional connection, like I, I understand and I'm a firm believer that all of those things are different. And they have a different scale that one person can kind of just slide through in their parts of life. And so conceptually or intellectually, I can be like, all right, yeah, I can, I can understand this. But to see it written or to see it talked about is usually not common. Mm-hmm. Um, For me, this book was so interesting in the sense that I felt like Les's character was somebody that I could really relate to as a middle-aged gay man. And specifically this kind of, I think he's like a very confused person and doesn't really know what it is that he's trying to accomplish in his career. He doesn't have a lot of understanding of what he wants to do in terms of his love life. Um, You know, he sort of vacillates back and forth between, you know, this thing with Freddie, which then ends, and then these kind of like random encounters with people. He also had this kind of relationship with this Robert Brayburn character that ended. And I just, I just thought that the way that Greer wrote about this was impactful also for what you said about the way that people move through different phases of their lives. And especially as a gay man, I think that so much of what is problematic about gay culture in terms of popular culture, literature, film, all of this kind of stuff is that it hyper focuses on young gay life, Mm. hookup culture, parties, parades, you know, all, Mm. all of the fun stuff about being young and gay. This book is like trying to deal with, with the real issues that you have to deal with in your day-to-day life as you try to figure out your career and also who you want to be with or how you Mm -hmm. want to be with those people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that why this is resonating with me so much is that I'm also dealing with this in my current state. You know, I'm, I'm very open and hungry to an extent for companionship. Mm-hmm. You know, for partnership that is um, beyond superficial, really, you know, someone that I can talk about my pets with, you know, someone that is willing to go grocery shopping for me, um, someone that's willing to go grocery shopping with me, yes. someone that's willing to be like, no, we're actually going to do this. You know, someone that's willing to make coffee in my coffee pot whenever we get up in the morning or someone that I can do something for, but not someone that I take on these romantic gestures and big dates. And that costs a lot of money. 
I'm like, baby ain't got this kind of money, but I do have a lot of love and affection that I'm willing yeah. to give yeah. and attention and energy. And so I think this is such a powerful, it really does flip the script a little bit and reminds us that it is so much, it, it is, it is so much more than what we have thought are been socialized to believe about love and relationships. And I think that it just adds a beauty effect that it's a queer relationship. Well, and in fact, it goes to the first quote that you pulled out in the book. And this is why I think Freddie and Les do end up coming together by the end of the book is because in fact, their love is built on this kind of everydayness, right? right. Now, it, now, the way that it happens, the way that it develops over time is not necessarily traditional. But like, I would be very interested in you reading that long paragraph of the first quote, because this to me is exactly why I think that they end up staying together. Mm. Yeah, I'll read it. You know, it was so easy. Freddie found Carlos's house intolerable and so often after a long Friday teaching and hitting a happy hour with a few of his college friends would show up at Les's, tipsy and eager to crawl into bed for the weekend. The next day would be Les nursing a hungover Freddie with coffee and old movies until Les kicked him out on Monday morning. This happened once a month or so when they first began, but grew into a habit. Until Les found himself disappointed when one Friday evening, the doorbell never rang. How strange to wake up in his warm white sheets, the sunlight through the trumpet vine, and sense something missing. He told Freddie the next time he saw him that he should not drink so much or recite such terrible poetry. And here was the key to his house. Freddie said nothing but pocketed the key and used it whenever he liked and never returned it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I think, and one of the reasons that I chose this as my first quote was that this is the first time that Freddie is introduced to less like this, mm -hmm. right? It's the first time that, you know, as a reader that there's something deeper here. Mm -hmm. And I think that Greer does a really, really fun twist on words of you know he told Freddie that the next time he saw him he should not drink so much or such it's terrible poetry and here was the key to his house you know like don't do this and I will see you next weekend mm. you know and mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of fun um, and Freddie said nothing but pocketed the key and used it whenever he liked and then, you know, as you go on, it says, you know, an outsider would say that's all fine, but the trick is not to fall in love. They would have laughed. They would have both laughed at that. Um, so I, I think that that those couple of pages are really insight, insightful. Yeah. And I um, think, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to end that with saying as it relates to their relationship and how it evolved over time. But it was routine, right? Like you said, it was routine. It was some sort of normalcy that happened to it. And I would argue that they did it or they began this, this, this seeing each other every weekend or once a month, whatever, 
as a part of no strings attached. Like there was no, I want to date you. Um, I want to court you in this way. It was very much your place feels safe for me. I just need a place to land. Carlos's place is not cool. I don't like it there. Can I sleep over for the weekend? Yeah. And so and it, it became normal and no strings attached. But little do we know the strings were being sewn very slowly, but, but intentionally. So, you know, in the book, there are these multiple levels of exploring the age gap in queer relationships. First, when Les is a much younger man and dates Robert. Yep. And then that situation dissolves. And then he becomes the older person and he ends up dating Freddie. And then, you know, I think there's this real uh, stress-induced tension that is part of what I find compelling about Les's character development is that he, after Freddie leaves, after they part ways, I felt like Les had a tremendous amount of guilt about letting him leave. There's this line in the book, you know, where he says, why didn't I say yes when Freddie asked me do you want me to stay with you forever? And, you know, it speaks also, I think, of this kind of generational gap where, I don't know if this will resonate with you as, you know, another queer identified man, but there, there really is in our society, I think, a huge generational gap in understandings of queer relationships between people of my generation and people of your generation. And what I mean by that is I grew up in a time when the idea of being able to have a queer relationship that would be lasting and even recognized by the state or the society was just not a reality. So, so much of our relationship thinking growing up was about this idea of just these kind of short interminable or yeah, short interminable relationships that won't last. And there's no reason for them to last because you can't even be in a committed partnership because the government won't recognize it if you believe in that, or it just wasn't something that was going on. Now, I, you know, I think that young people, and I'll use my partner as an example, you know, my partner very much like grew up in a world where, you know, being in a strong, stable, queer relationship was just like expected and the norm. And I think that Les wrestles with that in the book to a certain extent. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that, I I think that that absolutely resonates with me. And I think that Les to some extent is dealing with that. Um, And I think there's something to be said about, which Greer doesn't really talk much about, of Les's understanding of relationships are kind of desires of what a relationship, our partnership 
is defined by him. You know, he is very career focused. Um, and he was with someone that was absolutely career focused as well. Yes. yes. And Freddie is not career focused or was not career focused. Besides, I, I, oh, I, well, I don't do you know think if I want to take true? that. Do you think yeah. that's true? Maybe not. Because um, I go back to this like lazy quote that uh, Freddie was dealing with. But, you know, he was a teacher. Um, and I think that he was absolutely focused on his career and where he was going. Um, but I think that for Les, definitely career focused. Um, and I think that he saw a lot of his personal life bleed into these career focused experiences. Um, and I think that that was messing with him throughout the book. You know, he would go to this place, ha- you know, meet a guy and then immediately have a memory of Freddie um, or go teach some, some lessons on writing or literature, but in the after effect, be thinking about his friends or Freddie. And so I think that throughout the book, you see him do, do this journey. I mean, and the journey in and of itself was to avoid going to a wedding. Freddie's wedding. wedding. Right. Right. This is the point, right? It's like, this is, you know, he is actually running away yeah. from his feelings is one of the, is one of the ways that the book is framed. Mm-hmm. He can't deal with the tension around the fact. And this is why I said, I, I feel like he's so conflicted about the decision he made with Freddie because he can't deal with the fact that Freddie has moved on and is getting married to another man. And so rather than deal with that, he decides to go and do all of these extravagant things around the world that are both kind of focused on his career, but also sort of focused on this midlife crisis around his 50th birthday. I mean, you know, deciding to go to Morocco for your 50th birthday and ride a camel across the Sahara desert seems like conflicted hot sort of decision-making process, you know? (laughs) Hot. Hot and cold. I mean, the desert gets cold in the evening. Well, I also found it really, yes, yes, yes. I mean that, yes, I, I agree. And I, something that I found interesting, just as I was looking, skimming through the book recently, that he had friends in some of these places Yes. And I think that he had met Carlos, Freddie's, you know, guardian. Um, and which is also fascinating about queer relationships in general, right? Like Les and Carlos are like friends, but like arch nemesis. It's very, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, sure. I see. I yeah, got it. And, you know, Carlos was at a place that Les was traveling to. And I'm like, well, the stars are aligned if I ever guess them myself, you know, and then this idea of, or this concept of the, you know, the queer social circle, I think it's pretty small. Um, And to have it on a global level like that, Hmm. and then have their friends in across the world know about this wedding 
that did not happen, that happened, but something of a scandal happened, you know, to have them know about that, I think what in um, Paris, uh, whenever uh, Les was meeting up with uh, someone else, you know, so I thought that was pretty comical to me of like, you know, no matter where you go, going back to this like running away thing, like it always came back to him. Which I think you sort of know from the beginning, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the you, and it's kind of a trope in literature anyway, that anyone who's trying to run away from a problem, that problem is always going to catch up with them. And this, this is a, a plot spoiler for people who are listening that haven't read the book, but that's just the way things go. There, there's also commentary here, and I don't know how you feel about it, around the fact that this man that Freddie marries, what is his name? I think it's Tom or Todd. Tom or Todd or something like that, right. It's very interesting to me that he realizes on their you know, wedding night in Tahiti Mm-hmm. that Freddie mm-hmm. does not want to be married to him and mm-hmm. decides to just like let him go. And I just, I don't know, Andre, like I don't think that it's that easy. And I know that that's not a main character in the book, but I, it's just one thing that I thought, you know, is when you read books, you try to think about like, could I do that? And I was just thinking, like, if I had gone through the process of being in a relationship with someone and then getting married to them, could I truly on my wedding night realize that that person is unhappy and set them free so they could go and be happy, knowing that it's going to bring pain and misery to your own existence? And I just don't know. I don't know that I could do it. It, it really is a very very emotionally intelligent conversation that Tom and Freddie have in that bed in Tahiti, you know, Freddie is crying. Tom is awoken. And I think like the quote is literally, I wish you weren't crying right now. Yeah. It's something like that. Right. And, you know, uh, a part of me is like, Tom knew every, I feel like everyone knew. Of course, everyone knew. Everyone knew. It was no, it was not a kept secret. Unbeknownst to them, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it was not a kept secret that Freddie was with Les almost every weekend for a while. And so I, you know, a part of me is like, Tom, Tom knew, right? And I think Tom came to terms with I'm probably marrying someone that obviously was in love with someone else, um, but is choosing to be with me Mm. for whatever that means. Um, I also think that I, I agree that what, how would this play out in reality? Yeah. And, and a part of that book too was Tom and Freddie 
in the middle of the night, had that conversation and Tom left the room, Yeah, you know, and left Freddie to be there and be with himself. Yeah. And I'm like, that is, that is, uh, that is very, that's very brave of you. That is very intelligent, like emotionally intelligent of, of understanding that, you know, out of all of this, out of all of life, no one is ever perfect. And something, you know, things are, things are not permanent. Mm. Well, I think that that gets into something that you, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to go here, but I, I like to get into some of these quotes and, you know, Oof. you had put down. If you're talking, yes. 179 to 184. Reader, if you do nothing, if you do not read this book, at least read pages 179 to 184. I, so I, 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 I've always thought about that of how can, how can I approach a relationship in such a way that we have, we have checkpoints, we have touch points where we never have to feel obligated to perform a certain way. Um, and if it gets to a point where it is no longer working, it is okay to not sign the contract again. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, there could be something better. I could just be tired of this contract mm-hmm. um, or this contract is hurting me. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, I'm not, I'm not getting what I said I needed out of this contract anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I read this, I, I read these 179 through 184 of this understand. And it was beautiful how less was reacting to this Lewis and Clark situation. Yes. He was, he was freaking out. Right. He, he was, was so like, upset. He was so upset. Right. And I'm like, that, I mean, Les, this, this, this needs to tell you something here, my dear. Um, but also I was freaking out. I was like, oh my God, 10 years. Or it was 20 and years. Th- hold on. Well, the first 10 years, they oh, go yeah. back to this place and he's like, well, it's been 10 years. And the guy's like, are you fucking serious? And he's like, <laughs> no, I want to stay with you. I'll do another 10 years. And he's like, oh, okay, good. And then. 10 years later, they go back and it's like, well, what do you think? And the guy's like, Clark, I think is the, the guy who's telling the story. Clark is like, I think we've reached our time. Mm-hmm. And the partner is like, I think so too. Mm-hmm. And that even saying that, Paul, like mm. does something to me internally. Well, you know, and, and, you know, what I love about that scene, yes, I mean, it's so powerful in terms of the reason we started this was you said nothing is permanent. I mean, that may or may not be true. That's certainly mm-hmm. a trope of the book, a theme mm-hmm. of the book. But, you know, the way that Clark is talking about it, it's Clark that's talking about it or Lewis? I think so. I think it's Clark. I think it's Clark, yeah. You know, and I put, you know, I pulled this specific quote out on page 181 because I had highlighted this. So when you sent it to me, I was like, yeah, I, I, this resonates with me too. Or maybe it's Lewis. It, it's sorry, Lewis. Yeah. Lewis is talking about his impending divorce from Clark. Right. Yes. And 
you know, like you said, Les is so upset. He feels like this is the perfect queer relationship. And if that perfect queer relationship can't withstand the test of time, then what the hell hope does do, do the rest of us have, right? Um, it's like the canary in the, in the coal mine, right? If Lewis and Clark can't make it, the rest of us are screwed. But, you know, Lewis says this thing, you know, he says, no, no, Arthur, it's the opposite. I'm saying it's a success. 20 years of joy and support and friendship, that is a success. 20 years of anything with another person is a success. End quote, that's on page 181. And I think that's true of not just like romantic, emotionally involved relationships. I think it's also true of like friendships, like you said, right? Relationships in life are hard. Mm -hmm. They are just challenging. And if you can find people that you can spend that much time with and they can be, you know, they bring joy to your life and they support you and they do all of this other kind of stuff, that's what relationships are about. Relationships aren't really about, you know, sex or, I mean, I say this all the time, like they're, they're about all this other stuff. They're about like, and that's one of the quotes, that's one of the quotes that I had pulled out um, actually. Um, when, when they're in the desert, uh, when Les is in the desert with Zora and, um, Yes. And he's like, you know, Zora has been left by Janet, you know, after a long relationship and she's very upset and they're talking about, you know, like, what is love and how do you know, do you, is there like a love of your life or can you have multiple loves of your life or something like that? And, you know, Zora says, there's no love of your life. Love isn't terrifying like that. It's walking the fucking dog so the other one can sleep in. It's doing taxes. It's cleaning the bathroom without hard feelings. It's having an ally in life. It's not fire. It's not lightning. I, I just, I loved that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's really how I think about love. Right. And it's real. I think it's not a fantasy. You know, and I think that we've fantasized so much of what love and love at first sight and all of this shit mm-hmm. that we come to expect. And then when we're not met with that, we're like, well, this is a failure. You know, this, this gets into, we've been very serious in this conversation, but it, but it gets into the, the topic of the way that this book is actually written. This is not a somber, no, uh, super serious, super heavy book, even though we've been talking quite literally about some very big, important themes related to queer life and, and queer relationships. The right. book is funny. Yeah, I mean, it is a, I mean, it's, it's, yes, it is not somber. It is, I would say, yes, emotional, but on a very light level, 
um, and it has great comic relief um, in it. That is, is fun to read. And I think if anyone reads it, they're going to see that. And as they close the book and they reflect more, I think that they can expand upon, you know, these relationships and what that means mm -hmm. um, for, for themselves. You know, something that you, you brought up that I did write the quote about was whenever Les is in Paris, I want to say, um, he's at this bar and Alexander has not gone to the bar. So he's at the bar by himself, but he sees someone that has read his, his, his books. And I, I don't know what her name is, but she says, basically you're a bad gay. She's like, That's I want to tell quotes. you, yeah, yeah I, she is it's mentioning Finley. Finley. I, I don't want to gender Finley. I forgot who they are. Um, but Finley is like, I want to give you some feedback about your work. Like, it's not because you're, you know, your writing is bad. It's because you're a bad gay. And Les is like, what? And I think that that is, that is, that is funny to me. I mean, so many, how many times do I say in my everyday life that I'm a bad gay? Do you like, really? Yeah, or like my gay card is being remoked, revoked or anything like that. Or like someone's a bad gay if they don't know a gay reference or a gay cultural reference or something like that. How many times do I hear that? Um, so that was really funny to me. But it was interesting to see that level of candidness between Finley and Les around, you need to stop writing about this because it just, it comes across this certain way. And I think that was a cool part of the book that resonated with his writing, his career, and not, it didn't have much to do with his relationships. Yeah. It, it you know, I think it's also, I don't know if it's Finley, but it, at the Italian uh, award ceremony, whoever gets up to sort of start the evening award ceremony, right. Uh, says something about, you know, I really hope tonight that we don't reward the assimilationist writers who belittle the gay community and try to make us fit in with the heterosexual lifestyle. And he's, of course, referring to Les's book Calypso, which is a kind of retelling of the tale of Odysseus going back to his wife. And and Les gets up and leaves, right? Because he's like, oh, well, if he's really ripping my shit, then I'm not going to win this award. And of course he does, and he's not there to, to receive the award, which is embarrassing and, and funny. But, you know, this, this I, I, I like this theme of trying to explore what it means to be like a good gay person. And even what it means to be a good writer, or a good, you know, this is a, this is a kind of, you know, other part of the book that I found compelling for myself is that all, all of the people in this book kind of struggle with their own, you know, what it means to be good at their job, what it means mm -hmm. to be good at being a gay person, what it means to be good to be in a relationship. Robert, 
you know, when he's with Robert, he talks, there's this long paragraph where he talks about, you know, part of being with a writer and a poet is that you have to live in this, you have to live with a person who's in a constant state of doubt about their abilities, about whether what they're doing is good. I just, the reason I really like that theme is because there's not a right way to be a gay person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I appreciate that. And I, and I think I take that lesson on many levels, right? You say there's no, there's no right way to be a gay person. You know, you kind of just are. I also think, you know, speaking to some of your examples that you said, there's no right way of maybe being in a relationship. But I do appreciate that sentiment of if we live in this space where there are many, many possibilities of doing something. Um, I mean, how liberating is that to be able to forge your own path in that way? I also really appreciate that this book won, um, I, I, it has nothing to do with maybe what we were all talking, what we were talking about. Just no, now. just let it go. But it was a you know, national bestseller and winner of a Pulitzer Prize. You know, and when my friend Rachel gave it to me, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe because of this like gold little sticker here, <laughs> exactly. it means that it's something. And so I read it and I'm like, oh, wow, like I enjoyed this. I, you know, I, I don't know what the standard of a Pulitzer Prize is, but hey, I, I enjoyed it. Well, a Pulitzer is actually one of the top literary awards. So, you know, I had picked this book up many years ago at Brazos Bookstore in Houston. So anyway, when you mentioned that you were you wanted to read this book, I was like, oh, good, I'm finally going to kind of get to that book. And I think that this is like a sort of moment of self-reflection. I really have... Uh, stayed away from queer literature in my reading life, to be quite honest. Like I find reading queer literature to be very hard because Mm. I find so much of queer literature to be trite and written in this, you know, kind of way that doesn't fit with my own personal expectations or experiences as a queer person. Um, So I just have a really hard time when someone's like, oh, this is the great gay American novel, or this is the great queer novel or whatever the case is. And I'm like, it's probably not, Um, you know, and it's probably going to irritate me. And I'm probably going to have a really hard time with it because, because the type of queer person that I am or that I've grown into is just like, you know, I'm just like a book nerd. I just want to stay at home and drink coffee and, you know, just that kind of thing. I mean, I was different when I was younger, of course, but, but now that's just who I am. So again, like this book for me was just, it was nice because I felt like I, I finally saw a gay character that I resonated with on like a very personal level in terms of his own struggles, his own doubt, his own irritation with figuring out where he's going in his life. And that is just like, that is smack in the middle of where I am right now in my own personal life. So I, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm glad that I, I, I remember emailing you 
And I was like, I have a lot of books that I've read. What do you, I had a hard time even thinking of like, what do I want to talk about on a podcast? Wow. Um, And having you kind of narrow down some of those that I gave you was really helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think less just stuck out to me. And I think that it's just a sign, you know, I'm glad that I chose the book. I'm glad that you read it and enjoyed it on that level. And I hope that anyone who listens to this, no matter their identity, specifically around age and sexual orientation, can can maybe see something in this book that draws them to it. Because mm-hmm. I think the lessons in this book are far more reaching than just to a, a, a gay man. Mm-hmm. Andre has been a higher education and student affairs nerd since his college days. He currently serves as the assistant director for academic initiatives, curriculum, and assessment for Tulane University's Housing and Residence Life Office. Andre is a native to Louisiana, but has lived in the Midwest most recently. He holds degrees in sociology and educational studies. A proud gay man, Andre has been living his authentic life for 15 plus years. He loves his pets, his home, his job, and any chance he gets to eat good Southern style cooking. You can contact Andre via email, aabear11 at tulane.edu. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Andre. We further discuss some additional characters in the book, including Robert, the way Greer leaves you guessing the narrator until the closing pages of the book, and more about how the book spoke to our own desires and experiences as gay men. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.rizoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolowski, copyright-free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright-free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been The Rhizomatic Reader. Rhizomatic Reader.